<laughs> Hello, Emerging Writers. Welcome. We're so glad that you could join us today as we sip tea and discover our inner storytellers. My name is Stephanie, and I'm joined by my best friend, Kayla, and my sister, Jordan. Hello. Hi. We'll be taking a bit of a break from our usual deep dives into writing for today's tea time topic, villains, the antagonists. Our hero's greatest opposition, the driving force for major conflict. What makes a compelling antagonist? How do we, as writers, create characters that are both relatable and despisable? Now, antagonists aren't always sentient characters. They're whatever force is acting in opposition to the protagonist. That being said, we'll be focusing mainly on the human antagonist and what components make up one as equally compelling as the hero. I'm going to shake some things up a bit today. Jordan, what are some memorable villains that come to mind for you? Well, the first one I think of is from Once Upon a Time, and it's Rumpelstiltskin mm -hmm. slash Mr. Gold. So at the beginning of his introduction, you didn't really know why he was bad, but over the course of the show, they kind of explored him, and you found out that he was a really weak man who couldn't protect his family and he was a coward and he became a villain and got dark magic basically so he could defend himself and try to not be a coward anymore and I think they did a good job with him especially giving him that backstory and then he had this little spark of humanity to him that made you want him to make the right choices and do something good for himself I haven't seen all of Once Upon a Time, but I've seen the first few seasons, and I was struck by how uh, slimy and charismatic he felt in moments. Mm -hmm. Like, he really had a good villain persona that then broke occasionally, and you saw a little bit more of the humanity. Yeah, I agree with that. Kind of bouncing back to last week, where we were talking about relationships, uh, the relationship dynamic that they gave that particular character with him and Belle is part of what gave him that humanity. So relationships can be super helpful in bringing about changing characters and uh, helping them show parts of their personality that they don't otherwise. But anyway. I think villains, especially having good relationships developed with your villains and other people, can be really important if you want them to be a little bit more well-rounded. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes in badly written stories with villains, it's just like the villain and their mindless minions against the world. Yes. And that's definitely not empathetic. <laughs> yeah, those don't stand out to me. I could hardly think of any of those when I was doing research and trying to come up with villains for this topic. Um, all the ones that I thought of were ones who had a good backstory and who had clear-cut motivations. Yeah, I've read and watched a lot of stories with badly done villains, and I couldn't think of a single name even just to bring it up as an example for what not to do. I feel like villains with strong personalities, strong relationships, strong backstories are all kind of far and few in between. Another I thought of was Loki from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I thought they did a good job with him talking about his backstory and his parentage and the struggles he went through in life that led him to crave that... Um, power and recognition that he never got because Thor was his brother. And I thought that was a really good choice for a villain and left him very well-rounded. 
They definitely could have taken him in a worse direction since he's based off of the Nordic god of mischief. Mm -hmm. They could have just taken that at face value and been like, well, that's why he does everything because he's the god of mischief. Yeah, they could have gone full Joker where he just wanted to make havoc. I feel like he kind of has that charming rogue persona that you see often in stories. Uh, Sometimes you see it in characters that are a little bit more neutral, like Han Solo has a little bit bit of that like charming roguish quality. Mm -hmm. But with Loki, they add that to his villainy. And so he's kind of like a lovable villain. And that's even more so when you layer it onto his relationship with his family and with Thor. Yeah, a lot of that has to do with the actor though yeah he decided to portray him and also that he's a good looking guy so that (laughs) helps i think the fact that they gave him a few breakthrough human moments where he didn't do the wrong thing or did something slightly less Mm self-serving helped to make him memorable and feel more real get help also helped oh yes get help was great that whole movie was great for loki's persona (laughs) (laughs) Another one in the comic book movie realm, I think, is Magneto from the X-Men. He's one of my favorite characters on the X-Men, which is one of my favorite things in general. Um, And I think the most interesting thing about him was how he was kind of an opposite side of the coin from Xavier, who was willing to trust people. Uh, as opposed to only trusting mutants like Magneto. And I thought that gave him a good moral dilemma. And uh, so he had things in common with the protagonists, but had a different core belief system and his morals were different. So what he did could be viewed as bad to some, but maybe not to others. And I think that made him very compelling because obviously in the movies you see a lot of, well, the humans just crapped all over the mutants and killed them and experimented on them and hurt them. And he knew that and he'd experienced it. And I think they showed it very well in his backstory. And I think that led to him being a very well done villain because it's a morally gray thing. Like, would you really trust the people who hurt you and want to protect them? Or would you try to protect your own? Mm -hmm. I think the X-Men is so incredible because they set it up as mutants to be this this uh discriminated class and then how do people uh, deal with that discrimination and with that um hate thrown at them and so i feel like magneto and people that fall in his camp are really empathetic because if you're in that situation you could very easily be react in the same way and it's not necessarily you doing the wrong thing it's just perhaps not the most benevolent and Mm -hmm. I think Magneto is so interesting because it's not like he hates everyone and wants to destroy the world he's standing up for like what is his found family and his group of people and so looking at villains that are standing up for a cause they believe to be right and just and trying to protect the people they care about is one of the most compelling type of villain to me because it's not it's It's only a villain in the perspective of the story and the main character. It's not necessarily a villain by, like, their actions alone. Yeah, that's the important thing to keep in mind when you're writing a villain. He's, or she, they're the hero of their own story. 
they're not a well-written villain isn't just there because they want to be an, op an uh, opposing force to the hero. Um, I mean, I guess Joker's kind of an example of someone who is just sort of there for the sake of being there to cause chaos. Like, he has his own backstory that they eventually write in or whatever. But a well-written villain should... The writer should know as much about their antagonist as they do their protagonist. They should be as fleshed out. They should have the same degree of backstory and purpose and reasoning behind their motives as the hero does. I think the reason that the Joker does work is because he's in opposition to the Batman, who is a very um, clear-cut, this is right, this is wrong, he doesn't want to shoot people, and he wants to clean up the streets type character who does not deal in chaos, and the Joker mm -hmm. completely deals in chaos. I think the Batman and uh, the Joker work as a hero and villain because it feels very much like they're in the same world. You know, mm -hmm. one is law and order and one is chaos and destruction. And they have a little bit of complexity and backstory, but their actions are pretty straightforward. They don't have that um, influx and irregularity that real humans have to their actions. Mm -hmm. And so it, it feels like they belong in the same story. And the story isn't one that's diving into the complexities of what it is to be a human or the fullness of a well-written character. Not to say that they're bad, but it's more of a simplistic way to write characters. It's a very comic book way of handling people and stories. There's a very specific way that comics write people and write their stories and there's beats that they go through that stand out from other forms of writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the comics tend to stick a little bit more closely to archetypes of characters rather than mm -hmm. fleshing them out and making them well-rounded. They're very much a caricature of one type of thing. Yeah, I think only really in recent days now that audiences care about that are they starting to try and hone in on things like that more and I could be wrong I'm not like a comic book buff so I haven't read in depth any of the older comics so it could have been happening well before and I just don't know could be. I, I haven't read a lot of comics but one that I read a few of that I found really interesting and unusual was the Sandman which uh, is by Neil Gaiman and had different little micro stories. And it, it was well off the, the uh, normal superhero path. So I think there's always been some that handle character and handle story differently. It's just not a genre I have a whole lot of knowledge in. Mm -hmm. I think another good type of villain is one that's based in your main character's biggest fear. Um, like a monster type of villain. Ones that are really blown up out of proportion, kind of have lost their humanity in a sense, or maybe never had humanity, like if it's a, a big monster or was never human or is not quite human. I feel like close to what could be a human or humanoid, but a monstrosity and a like blown out of proportion version of that is some of the most horrific types of stories I've read. Mm -hmm. The the werewolf, the zombie, the vampire, the what once he, was human and now isn't, is really eerie, 
but the creatures like, you know, fey creatures or demons or things that resemble humans almost but are not is some of the most unnerving stories to me. I think so too, just because there's there's such a fine line of that could be a thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's something that is the predator making us the prey. Mm-hmm. And that's like I think a deep primal fear that just humans being animals and creatures have. And it's it's uh, unnerving to consider yourself the prey. The other mother from Coraline would be a really good example of that sort of thing. Like, at first, she appears very human. And then Coraline kind of looks at the world a little bit more. And there's unsettling things about this world that don't line up with her own. I mean, the eyes, for one, to start with. And then the other mother's, like, human persona just starts to melt away the more she's told no and becomes this monstrosity of a thing for her to try to deal with and get away from. And being in an environment that is entirely controlled by her Mm -hmm. and where everyone else is just a puppet, Mm -hmm. basically everyone the cat isn't, but uh, it's very unnerving to think, like, you're caught in this trap of this creature and you're this prey. Um, I think it's interesting because I, uh, I remember an interview or blog post from Neil Gaiman where he discussed how children don't find Coraline to be that horrific of a story, but adults always do. And I feel like the older you get, the more aware you are that you're not always like the top of the ladder that you're mm-hmm. not always in control and that feeling of being the prey or being in someone else's control is a much more tangible graspable fear fear yeah i think fear is a super good motivator on propelling your character to change and do the things they need to meet their goal because nobody likes to be afraid you know and i think if you can have a villain that introduces their fear that's going to be a good way to motivate your character in your story also if your main antagonist is something that's quite that monstrous um it adds like the stakes feel greater against your character like you have this simple person fighting against this great evil thing that can't necessarily be reasoned with Mm because it's not quite human yeah, kind of reminds me of the, the ghost or whatever it was in Green Rider. It was kind of a spooky, mysterious entity. I haven't gotten very far in, so I don't know how it's resolved. But at the beginning of the book, it's very much a, oh, this crazy thing's going on in the background. How can they possibly defeat this thing? Mm, I don't know about that. I think you might be misremembering the book. But <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I've only read it once. <laughs> I only read half once. It's been a while since I've read the first book, to be fair, so I might also not be remembering it all. But anyway, um, so how you, like, what sort of villains you use can really set the tone for your story? Like, those big, bad, monstrous ones set a very different tone than a villain who's more grounded in, like, humanity or one whose motivation is something that's very human you know yeah I feel like not to bring up Magneto again but I feel like with the X-Men they had some really empathizable and (laughs) I don't know what empathizable that's right right I think so I felt like I was 
saying the wrong word. It's been Paste. a long day, but uh, I could really relate to Magneto and to his struggle, struggles and some of his lackeys too. But uh, that's because they were dealing with real problems, or at least problems that could be allegories for real problems we're mm-hmm. having. Yeah, I feel like it's definitely a parallel to something like racism. Yeah. Another one that does that is Harry Potter. Yes. Again, Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Hey. It's okay. the only story I know. We talked <laughs> offline about not bringing up Harry Potter again. And we for, didn't. For the record, like, both of them brought up how they didn't want to bring it up again. Well, because I just felt a little bit weird about talking about it, but it's been the thing I'm reading and watching. Oh, note, at this point, I have watched all the Harry Potter movies, so I'm no longer a weirdo reading the fan fiction without the source material. I'm so (laughs) proud of you. (laughs) So everyone is aware, that's Jordan. Yes, that was Jordan. Yeah. Kayla, me. Is the, is the one who's read all the books and watched all the movies and then dove into the fan fiction. Actually, my mom read me the first book chapter by chapter as a bedtime story when I was like five. So I've literally grown up with Harry Potter. Yeah, and Stephanie is the one who has done none of that because I grew up in a household where it wasn't allowed because it was magic. I couldn't watch, what, what was it, Dragon Tales? Because they used magic to get to the land of the dragons. And, you know, magic is evil unless it's Disney. And then it's <laughs> fine. And uh, now I write fantasy stories with magic and, like, multi... What, what, is, what is that system where there's multiple gods? <laughs> oh, polytheism? Polytheism. Thank you. You're welcome. So, I'm a heathen. Sorry about that, mom and dad. Yeah, I grew up in that same system. And it's only after I moved out that I started getting into the things I missed out on that were popular when I was a kid and wasn't allowed to watch or do. And, you know. I was just raised as a heathen, like I said. (laughs) My mom read it to me at bedtime. When I was 13, my aunt gave me a copy of the first True Blood book. I think it's Dead as a Doornail, which is a very smutty, very sex-filled vampire paranormal romance that a 13 year old should not be given by their aunt (laughs) (laughs) that's funny when i was uh, i'm gonna say 10 because it was right before we moved to oregon uh my stepmom sent me a cd of beyonce's where she was wearing like a diamond outfit very kind of raunchy i guess oh i had that cd yeah yeah (laughs) that got taken away from me so it's just like (laughs) all diamonds there's no clothes it's just strands of diamonds yeah. I think my mom bought that for me when she was buying herself an Evanescence or Nickelback CD, and I was like, I don't want to listen to your sad music. Buy me Beyonce. <laughs> oh, but I love singing Evanescence. I like it too, but my mom did a lot of emo, punk, and rock. Is Nickelback <laughs> emo? Well, Evanescence is emo. Nickelback's just Nickelback. <laughs> Nickelback can't be categorized. It's just Nickelback. (laughs) Anyways, that was the music that she listened to when I was growing up. So I went through a phase where I'm like, give me all of the pop. And then I got to be a cool, edgy teenager. And I was like, no pop for me. Thank you very much. (laughs) So I was only allowed to read Narnia because it was written by a Christian and was technically like an allegory for Christianity. Same. Mm -hmm. Which... 
glad that that uh, workaround existed for me because <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed most of those books. There were some in there that weren't as enjoyable. The Horse and His Boy. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember them very much. I read a whole lot of books as a kid, so I don't really... I remember some. I think I read half of them. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was definitely the strongest one. Yeah, I, I sort of remember that one. I remember, like, Mr. Tumnus and different occasional characters, but not the whole thing. And I don't remember what really happened, but... The White Witch was an interesting villain that wasn't really given much. She just wanted to take over and rule the... the kingdom land world narnia you kind of get some some form of like her birthing in the magician's nephew which is like the prequel story yeah so you get how she was like born into the world but still not really her motivation i'm sorry was she born unusually i can't you said birthing kind of weird (laughs) it's like normally that's not a plot point like oh this character was born what a backstory (laughs) okay so the magician's nephew takes place primarily in like the real world and then i think near the end is when narnia gets created so it's talking about like the creation of the world in a biblical sense and at that time that's when i think the white witch came from another world that was destroyed it was either that or she was from the no she wasn't from the real world because she wasn't a daughter of eve so i think she came from like another world that was destroyed or something like that and so narnia wasn't where she was meant to exist or something. It's been a really long time since I read that book, and also I didn't really care about it. I'm Googling it right now, because I got curious, and she is the descendant of giants and Adam's first wife, Lilith. But she's no daughter of Eve. She comes of your father Adam's first wife, her they called Lilith, and she, she was one of the djinn. That's what she comes from on one side, and on the other side, she comes of the giants. No, no, there isn't a drop of real human blood in the witch. That's a quote from the book. Okay. Well, as we can see from this, you need to do a little bit better of a job of making your villains fleshed out and explaining their motivation. So years later, when people are talking about your story, they actually know what was going on in it, because otherwise, we end up like this. Yeah, you don't want your villain to be someone who's so forgettable that people have a vague sense of, oh, I've seen things with this sort of really bad villain and then not even be able to remember their name. Yes. Or not remember their motives because they weren't integral to the story enough for them to stick. I feel like the White Witch from Narnia kind of struck me as a storybook, a fairy tale stylized villain, almost like not a character, but just uh, she didn't feel fleshed out at all. And I feel like that style can sometimes work. But since none of us remember much about her, maybe that's not the most effective example. It's it's nice to give enough meat to the character that they last with you longer than a couple weeks after you read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. In addition to making memorable villains, sometimes for a story you need to have multiple antagonists and villains, especially if you're doing sequels to a book. Mm-hmm. I can, I've can i read a whole lot of paranormal fantasy where there's an overarching villain for the series and then each book has its own villain. And that's a fun way to kind of up your endurance of 
the like reader dealing with the story because the overarching villain you don't want there to be no resolution to each fight because they go away and come back in the next book and they do that for six books so with each book you do have a resolution of them solving the mystery or defeating the antagonist or killing them or what have you and I found that to be a really effective thing in a lot of fantasy writing that I've read. Yeah, in fantasy writing, that's like a series. A lot of times that's what will happen is there's some larger villain that they're slowly working their way towards and the smaller villains of each specific book help them get stronger to then be able to face that greater challenge, whatever it is. Not exactly connected, but just something that this made me think of. I like on television series where Usually it's like an episodic type of everything's resolved. I really like when they do have something that carries over. Like on Psych, there's at the end of the seasons, they deal with uh, Mr. Yin. And I really liked those episodes because you'd say, oh, yeah, I remember when this happened. What are they going to do next? And you have to wait a while, but you got that little longer interaction. Mm -hmm. I also liked it on uh, Bones had a couple that were hinted at occasionally and kept your interest just enough so you would be ready to hear more when the next big episode where the big bad guy who was looming in the background came up and did something awful. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Adventure Zone is one of my favorite narrative podcasts. It's people playing D&D together and... uh, they have an they have like seven different arcs within the balance version of adventure zone where they deal with one villain and then it leads up to the big big bad villain but in between each one they have a lunar interlude interlude <laughs> which is them going back to their home base and kind of having like a respite between the villains and the adventure and the missions and i really enjoyed that it reminds me kind of of the like beach episodes of animes (laughs) (laughs) yeah where it's like oh we're gonna take a break from all of the action and all of the villains and the bad guys and the evil and we're just gonna go to the beach and you get to see everyone's bikini and swimwear styles (laughs) (laughs) and it's like oh thank you i do need a little little change of pace I did need a respite thank you (laughs) i needed to see my characters having fun and laughing for a while before it turns to crap again (laughs) And I think that doesn't have to just be like book to book, but as you're writing, if you have a really intense, dramatic, high tension part of your book, and then you come away from the conflict, it's nice to have a chapter or two that's more mellow. Having that up and down pacing gives your character room to, your reader, room (laughs) to breathe and relax. And And then to, then to feel that anxiety and tension again as the, as the conflict sets back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find, especially reading books, when things get too intense for too long of a period, I really start skimming because I don't do well dealing with that pressure and I need to find out if someone's going to die or what's going to happen. So I think taking breaks and not introducing the crazy at once is pretty good. Okay, so moving back to villains, because <laughs> that's the topic of this Tea Time podcast episode. Um, (laughs) sometimes with those multiple villain scenarios, it's, it won't necessarily be like, there's a big bad spanned across multiple stories. It's like, here's the main villain of this book. And then here's some random guys dotted in. Mm. And 
oftentimes those villains are kind of comedic in their own way, like because they're trying to set them up as less intimidating as the main villain, you know? The like goons. Yeah. Yeah. What come came immediately to mind was Final Fantasy X that had like big, bad, dramatic villains, and then there was, like, that woman with the terrible, scantily clad, revealing dress and her two goonish henchmen. (laughs) I wish I remembered their names. I immediately thought of Team Rocket. Oh, yes, that too. Yeah. (laughs) Terrible, but so funny. (laughs) There are ways for you to have, like, your main villain be a little bit more comical, maybe not as good at their job and still be, like, a good villain. Um, what is that kid show? Phineas and Ferb? Doofenshmirtz? Oh, <laughs> He's yes. not the best at his job, but he's a pretty well-written, like, antagonist in a comedic way, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't always need to be, like, an intimidating villain. It needs to fit your story. Yeah. Or, I guess, like I said, the how you write the villain sets the tone for your story. True. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't really need a super crazy villain for children to be fighting, so. Yeah. Whatever it is, your villain just needs to be that opposition to your main character. So they need to clash. They need to be, I guess, opposites and archetype, if you want to look at mm-hmm. it in that way. Obviously, they should be deeper than that, and it's pretty interesting if they have similar um, things going on, like what if maybe underneath it all they would fight for the same causes but because their world views are so different and how they go about it is so different that's what causes them to clash or you know whatever yeah i think that anything that makes them a challenge to your character your main character and your protagonist helps them to be a better villain if they're doing something that's directly affecting how they have to view the world and how they have to do things mm-hmm so I guess the, the important takeaways are make sure that they're a good match for your protag and that they adequately clash with them and cause enough opposition and conflict to move things forward and flesh them out. Like, you don't want two-dimensional villains whose motivation is unclear that people forget about, you know? Yeah, you want mm-hmm. them to have a real motivation and real backstory like your character does. Well, I guess that about wraps it up for today's tea time. So now we pass the question off to you guys. What are some memorable villains that come to mind for you? Can you think of any by name that we (laughs) couldn't think of that were weak or otherwise unmemorable? Join us on our Facebook group, Writers Emerging, or follow us on Tumblr, Instagram, and Twitter. Links is always in the description. We look forward to seeing you next week.